Hello and welcome to the very first Perpetual Outsider podcast. My name is John Bensalia. Uh, I'm a freelance writer and sometime artist as well. Um, and this is the very first Perpetual Outsider podcast. Here's how it works. Um, each, uh, each podcast I will be selecting mostly Doctor Who, uh, maybe some other TV programmes as well from you know, Blake Seven, uh, old comedies, variety shows, that sort of thing. And I will be just sitting there yakking about it for 25 minutes or maybe longer. Anyway, the very first one I've chosen today is a classic from Doctor Who 1976. It is called The Deadly Assassin. It's the very first part. So without further ado, if you're ready and willing, Let's go in five, four, three, two, one, go. Here it is. Very first uh, podcast. What do I remember about the Deadly Assassin? Not a great deal. <laughs> I would have been two years old when this went out, so I think I was a little bit too young <laughs> to uh, to actually watch it, especially given it was made in the the gothic horror era of Doctor Who. I think I probably would have been a little bit too uh, young to be the target audience. Here we come up with this very unusual opening. I'm not... I know Star Wars was recorded in... They began recording in March 1976, I think. And this was recorded in the hot summer of 76. But I'm, I'm not really quite sure if, um, if they'd done the kind of the scrolling opening like they do in Star Wars. I don't know who influenced who, but it's a, it's a wonderful beginning, a really good beginning, because you don't know what the hell's going on. Why is the Doctor suddenly being bombarded by these strange crystal ball visions of Time Lords reaching out in horror? It's such a strange and unusual opening. Great zooming. And you think, okay, who's about to shoot the president? And then you think, oh my God, it's the doctor. <laughs> Wonderful opening. Like I said, it's a very unusual first opening for Doctor Who because you've, you've well, it's it's a very unusual Doctor Who in general because you've got these um, these kind of jumps in time, if you like. You know, you've got you're going backwards in time, forwards in time. Um, with these, you know, these flashbacks and these premonitions. And it's it's a very unusual tack to make and quite ahead of its time, really. And, of course, we're back on Gallifrey for the first time since The Three Doctors, I think. Or at least, the, you know, it's The Doctor's first visit uh, since the War Games. But uh, the, la the last time we saw them was The Three Doctors in a, in a Crackerjack comedy call centre. I, I love this old... TARDIS uh, control room. It feels it feels like it's lived in. You feel like he, you know, between adventures, the Doctor just goes to one of the uh, the console room roundels, opens one of them, and takes out a little bottle of brandy and just has a swig and just knocks back in one of the chairs and just relaxes. It's uh, it feel it feels like it's very much lived in. It's great. Oh, here we go. Is uh, Hillrod played by Derek Seaton? Sadly passed away not long after this was made, I think about three years. Um he was he was married to Paul Wilcox, who was in Man About the House. 
Um, but yeah, it's it's a good performance. And also, you've got George Pravda playing Spandrel. Uh, <laughs> he bugged the machine. I do apologise in advance for any bad impersonations. Uh, <laughs> if you've ever heard another great podcast called Hamster with a Blum Penknife by uh, by Joey, Joe, uh, Joe Ford, um, I, he, he very kindly invited me to do um, a podcast. And unfortunately, I just ended up doing really bad impersonations of Spandrel and Enkin. <laughs> so be warned, um, that there could be a few... Um, few bad impersonations. <laughs> Report number of registrations. <laughs> He's great, actually, Pravda. It shouldn't really work, but somehow it does. I remember the book, V of a novelization by Terence Dix. It describes him as this kind of weathered, bluff old cove. You know, this really kind of cynical, seen it all before you know, old sweat really. And he and he suits it well. I, th- I think he suits it better than he did in the uh, in the mutants, I think. You know, I think he was a little bit miscast as Jaeger in that. But but this is a good performance. And he was also in uh, Enemy of the World as Denish. And again, you know, good in that. But I, I think this is probably I think this is probably the best one for him. Again back to that TARDIS console room, you've you've got like this little oak bureau. You know, he sits down and writes his little correspondence. Maybe he put a message in a time bottle and sent it to Sarah Jane saying, uh, Dear Sarah Jane, I'm sorry that I abandoned you, but um, I'll see you in uh, in about 30 years when it's school reunion. I'm not really quite sure why Sarah Jane wasn't allowed to come with him. The only reason I can think of is maybe he thought that Maybe he had some kind of premonition that the danger would be too much for, for Sarah Jane. And, you know, the Deadly Assassin, I think, is, is probably one of the Fourth Doctor's most challenging adventures. So maybe he thought that even this would be too tough for her to handle. So he, you know, he dropped her back on Earth. And, of course, the other time that the Doctor had been, the previous time that the Doctor had been to Gallifrey, the War Games, and they, they made him get rid of Jamie and Zoe. So maybe he just couldn't handle it you know, seeing Sarah Jane go that way and all of her memories erased. At least that way, when the Doctor dropped her back in Croydon at the end of A Hand of Fear, he um, he he could, uh, he could called the shots and she could leave her memories intact. Cash and carry Constantino. I wonder where he... Uh, wonder when he got that bag, actually. You know, it's, it's probably a, a big Finnish adventure crying to be made out. Pat Gorman, uh, the ubiquitous mainstay of 1970s Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> every he's, He is like the Where's Wally of, um, of Doctor Who in that. Um, you can guarantee that at least every alternate adventure there will be a scene with Pat Gorman. And I, I presume he's only been stunned here because he actually comes back to life in the next part. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why. <laughs> Eric Chitty is. Again, it's casting that shouldn't really work, but it does. You know, he's this sweet, innocent, you know, kindly old man, and he's a, he's a little bit at odds with kind of like the um, the corruption and the petty bureaucracy going on Gallifrey. But he's this little doddly old dormouse. Eric Chitty was in, I think he was in Please Sir, 
And again, sadly passed away not too long after this uh, this story was shown. I think actually, I think it was in July 1977, I think literally about a week before they broadcast the repeat. Can you get me his extract, bile? Yeah, certainly. Won't take a moment. Uh, he sort of does it. Uh. <laughs> now, um, you, you can hear the squeak of um, um, the, the floor actually there. Hold on. This is what I did. Well done, hear it. An antiquated capsule of which you get adequate early warning transducts from the very perimeter of the capital. You are informed. That the occupant is no criminal, but you allow him to escape and conceal himself in a building a mere 53 stories high. A clever stratagem, he learned. You're trying to confuse him, I take it. <laughs> I'm not, oh, I'm trying not to do that again. Now, this is um, Roger Murray Leach said in an interview that George Pravda was given this note. And apparently it was, there were two notes, and one of them had the lines on it, which he could read. And the other is what you're seeing now, is this gobbledygook. And Roger Murray Leach said that pra George Pravda just broke into a cold sweat because, you know, he was desperately trying to rem remember his lines. <laughs> I, I like the way he's always crunching on these these little mints that he's got, these polo mints or, so, or whatever. You know, obviously, you know, he's, you know, maybe he's, maybe he's trying to keep uh, the habit of, you know, 40 ciggies a day or something. I don't know. And here we get our first glimpse of the master, played by Peter Pratt. And here we get our first glimpse of Chancellor Goth. Or do we? Do we? Um... I actually think he's the same time or at the end of a war games. I think, I mean, you, you can read it any way you want. That's the great thing about Doctor Who is that you can read it any way you want. But I, I actually think he's the same time, but, but I think he's just kind of risen through the ranks. Um, but, you know, whether or not that was intentional, I don't know. Um, there's an interview with David Maloney in which he says he, he cast Bernard Horsfall because he was a good match for Tom Baker's Doctor. He had the power and the range that could square up to Tom Baker, as well as being um, nearly the same height. I think Horsfall was six foot two, Tom Baker's six foot three. So it, it was it was a good match. I mean, it's it's especially useful given what happens later on in the story, uh, which which we'll come to then. But it's it's great performance, Re really good, really good, really good actor Bernard Horsfall. You see, back in those days, they didn't really kind of have big name guest stars. They they merely went for, you know, the cream of British character acting. Um, also, like you've got here, Hugh Walters as Runcible, this, uh, you know, this wonderful kind of parody of a TV reporter. It, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's great. And, he, you know, he he returns again in Revelation of the Daleks, actually, as, as Vogel. Uh, the past master of the double entry, but uh, we won't go there. But he's he's very good. It's it's a real kind of um, Weasley kind of fawning performance, especially when the Barusa comes in. Now there there was this outcry at the time. At the time, was kind of being a little bit, you know, quite insular and doddery old farts. Um, the uh, the documentary 
the ah uh, the guy who who led the criticisms at the time his argument was that basically the timelines were too human which i yeah i'm, I'm not really quite sure that you come across as human but i think it's a logical progression in a way because the time Lords have always been quite you know quite insular and backward looking and you know, they're, they're, they're so keen to preserve, you know, like neutrality and not get involved. So I, th I think, you know, the, the, the kind of reaction that they show here, you know, all this pomp and circumstance, it, it's empty pomp and circumstance. You know, there they are all in there, you know, their flowing robes and, you know, this, you know, sonorous organ music in the background. And it's all very kind of insular, you know, with, you know, with this pomp and circumstance ceremony. <laughs> I really like Tom Baker's reaction there. I think Tom Baker on his own works. I think I'm not really quite sure whether it would have lasted um, on a, on a full time basis, but I, th I think as a one off, I, th I think it works very well. And I think that only this uh, this kind of adventure could really kind of put him at the at the heart of the action. I think if a companion had been in it, I'm not, I'm not really quite sure it would have worked. You know, especially with the Matrix scenes, because it's, you know, it's it's just him on his own. museum. <laughs> Harry Fielder, another extra who was a regular of uh, of Doctor Who in the seventies, and is the TARDIS getting transducted into the uh, the old museum? Notes the grandfather clock. I mean, the the, down, the downside of, of Tom Baker being on his own is that he does kind of tend to talk to himself a little bit. You know, there, there's no there's no one to bounce off. There's no companion to explain his theories to. But, you know, I, I suppose that um, Spandrel and Engen actually do make the sub-companions in their own quirky way. And here we go with the master. They're a very different kind of master from the original Roger Delgado version that we saw in the early 70s. Um, in, my, in my opinion, no one can top Roger Delgado. He just had that instant instant charisma as, as the master. Absolutely perfect. So th this is a um, while I don't think uh, Roger, De you know, while I think Roger Delgado is definitely the best master, um, th this is a very freaky take on uh, on the character. You know, I mean, look at this mask coming up now. I mean, it's uh, it it's uh, it's amazing. Probably frighten a few kids though. <laughs> Big shadow, he dies very quickly. He's got a very unusual voice, Peter Pratt. It's yeah, it it, it goes really well with, with the mask, you know. This kind of you know, his his voice kind of, kind of sounds like it's got cobwebs in it. Even it's a very sort of very decaying old voice. Very strange, but it it, it works really well. But yeah, it, I, th I think it was a brave move to bring the master back. You know, it, um, unfortunately, Roger Delgado 
um, died in 1973, and there'd been a three-year gap uh, before they brought him back. Um, such a shame because he, he he was the best master, in my opinion. Um, but but I think I think they did well with this. Uh, it's two doddery old farts. Um, that is Michael Bilton on the left, who's in Pyramids of Mars, played Collins. And I think that is John Dawson on the right, who um, who goes on about his hip, much to Jan Vincent Rudsky's chagrin. <laughs> yeah, I think he I think he was going on about how you know time lords can regenerate hips, but you know, but it's not it's not as much fun really. Yeah, I mean, with it with this whole kind of rewriting of you know. The Gallifreyan law, you know, it. I think the Deadly Assassin marks the uh, the instance when time lords can only regenerate twelve times, and there's all this, you know, this new, you know, mythology. Um, I, I wonder how fans would have reacted to it. Other fans would have reacted to it at the time. I mean, if we'd had Twitter, God forbid, in 1976, I, I do wonder if um, there would have been such um, an outcry as there was with, you know, like. You know, the recent stuff with The Timeless Child, uh, which I'm going to try and erase from my memory. Uh, <laughs> but I think the I think the difference is that I think Robert Holmes was such a good writer and he had this skill. And while he was, you know, kind of um, putting in a few new things into the mix with, you know, Doctor Who mythology, he was also telling a damn good story. And that's what you get here. You, the, the most important thing, I think, is the story. And he, he does it so well. He crafts this, you know, this brilliant, tense, dramatic, and, you know, also unique story because it is so many kind of genres rolled into one. You know, in part one, you've got the political thriller, which is, runs along the lines of uh, uh, Mancurian Candidate. You've got the whodunit aspect, You've got the action adventure. You've got surrealism. You've got the courtroom drama. So many things. So many things going on here, and it works really well. I think it, it really, really does. And of course, you've got superb direction from David Maloney to actually complement that. I'm not quite sure who says. I wonder if it's the master that says the innocent to the slaughter. I, th I think it is the master, I think. It's kind of funny how Llewellyn Reese gets the top billing at the end of the episode, <laughs> given that he only gets this line, really. <laughs> oh, the jewel. Oh, yes, I have these right here. And, that, and that's all he gets. Here's Tom in his borrowed Gallifreyan robes. Tom Baker at the height of his powers here, I think. For me, still my favourite Doctor. Mainly because he didn't have to, like he says in interviews, he didn't have to reach for it. Playing this ben this benevolent alien, it came naturally to him. It's not really kind of a performance. He's kind of playing, kind of playing himself in a way, I think. Because he has, you know, he has that kind of mercurial, eccentric quality that comes across in the interviews. And yeah, it's it's just a wonderful performance. So get um, another aspect that I like is the way that he can change mood from scene to scene. 
or even within the space of one scene. One minute he's funny, next minute he's deadly serious. Um, he he can just turn on it in uh, in a sixpence. It's it's brilliant. And here we come with those flashbacks, and it's all building up to a great crescendo here. At the end of this episode is how on earth can the doctor shoot the president? And and it all builds wonderfully. The way he sees the gun, the way the way. He, Rushes through the time lords like it did at the uh, at the beginning in the pro in the early early part of the episode. It's wonderful. It, it it just comes together really well. Dudley's music is brilliant. Really good. Really good music. Very dramatic. They use the, they use the church organ quite a lot in. Uh, in the mid 70s because you've got pyramids and miles you've got this invasion of time image of the fendal i keep thinking that there's going to be uh, an organist that comes out of that little plinth in the middle <laughs> like they used to get in cinemas you know they used to get that little church organ that used to rise out of the uh <laughs> the crowds with this guy going da, 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 da. maybe they missed the trick there they, they should have done that with uh with Gallifrey and, you know, Gallifrey and ceremonies. And here we go. End of the episode coming up. And, oh no, the doctor shot the president. And here we go with a wonderful freeze frame. What a brilliant cliffhanger. And a brilliant first part as well. It's, it's such a wonderful story. One of my all time favorites, actually. Yeah, brilliant story, absolutely brilliant. And there's so much going in, so so much going on at, um, at once in this episode. And it's one of those instances where you really don't know where the hell it's going to go in the next episode. It could go anywhere you like, and it's that kind of mystery and wonder I think that I, you know, that I that I look for in Doctor Who, and I think this has it in spades. Anyway, that was the first part of the Perpetual Outsider podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, join me again for part two of The Deadly Assassin. Bye for now.